there's two tales. Millennials, quote, and people, you know, Gen Z and all those folks will come looking at us and we're like, the world's going to end in 12 years if we don't address climate change and your biggest issue is how we're going to pay for it. So there's obviously a big fear of melting glaciers, rising sea levels, droughts, poor air quality, wildfires, and, you know, worst of all, smaller penises. Um, sounds pretty scary, but let me tell you a different story. Today of Americans, officially designated as poor, 99% have electricity, running water, flush toilets, and refrigerator. 95% have a television, 88, a telephone, 71, a car, 70% air conditioning. Cornelius Vanderbilt had none of these. That didn't shock me enough. The impact of climate change actually dwarfed by 92% and the decadal death toll from natural disasters since its peak in 1920s, from 5.4 million to only 0.4 currently. So what seems more realistic? What wants you to do stuff? How would you respond? Would you have enough time to think? The reason I say, say this is important is because climate change had to stop just because we had a pandemic and lockdowns. And as soon as we get back to our normal lives, carbon emissions will come back and increase. And that's just part of inher inherently a part of our lives that we deal with. So we have to fix this. So currently, let's say we agree that climate change is bad for people, that we can agree that it's contributed from humans and that it's reversible. The problem then is that what do we do from there? So currently there's three schools of thoughts, light green environmentalism, which believes individual change, bright green, which believes technological change, and dark green, believing in restructuring society. So what we want to focus on is bright green or eco-modernism. The reason I want to focus is because it has a variety of ways to address climate change. Um, before I get into any solutions, though, I want to acknowledge the philosophy behind it. So rational optimism, first proposed by Matt Ridley, is the view, quote, that the world will be put out by the current crisis because of the way markets and goods, services and ideas allow human beings to exchange and specialize honesty for the betterment of all. Rational, because you arrive at optimism, not through temperament, but by looking at the evidence. Essentially, like the exact opposite of social media contrast to dark view is that okay things are getting worse essentially that yeah climate change is bad what we're doing is not enough if we're going towards our path we're all going to die and so the government should take responsibility to push towards the right direction um but is this really going to motivate people the reason i ask because it caused a lot of psychological harm in fact tons of people actually contemplating not having children because of climate change you don't want them to go through the struggle and not only that, but children also have fear, anxiety, depression because of this. And so think about how this impacts the future. If people are scared and they're fearful, they're going to lead to irrational thinking, which then means they're going to have time to think over their options. Um, thus, horrible decision making. And not only that, but a lot of them would think of a more narrow mindedly. Right. So we need to have more versatility, understand that we're doing better to fix these problems. Right. So the first solution out of our tools is nuclear energy. So let's go through how it works. You have fissile material, a modulator, rods. Fissile material is uranium that's filtered. Uranium shoots neutrons. The fuel rods manipulate neutrons. Neutrons are projected out of uranium to split it and cause a chain reaction. The moderator is being, that being water, essentially moderates neutrons. And inside the reaction core, this is where the chain reaction heats up. And the heat is going to transfer from this uh, reactor core to some other body of water to create steam. The steam then moves to a generator turn into electricity now the first problem that people think about is safety so it's interesting because chernobyl was one of these big incidents people uh point to but gary thomas is an expert in radiation and health in general uh, she started a chernobyl tissue bank to remove thyroid gland and just research um cancer that was uh caused by ukraine and valerius uh radiation but what essentially she says with an interview with mike and schellenberg is that typically we don't think of like 
uh, thyroid cancer as an actual real cancer because it's treatable. But unfortunately, because of the errors being poor, they couldn't really access it. Um, so all these radiation deaths could have been avoided to begin with. Um, and so if you compare, let's say, other places like Colorado, who has more uh, radiation because of uranium uh, concentration in the soil and elevation, they don't have as high of a cancer. So sometimes these methodologies within like the studies can also be kind of uh, weird. But let's say Fukushima, right? So Fukushima, what happened was that there was a tsunami that breached essentially towards the uh, a nuclear uh, split, space. Um, and what happened was that it got into the uh, water, right? And so, the, but the main killer was essentially the evacuations, like people being put out the hospitals. Um, and the fact about what, 1,600 people actually died because of evacuation deaths. And then obviously there's some alter externalities like the rising of electricity bills, um, air pollution, um, etc. Right, and people, some of them are not even coming back. Um, but another important thing to consider is how it affects people mentally. So, because of like the stigma behind it, a lot of people actually go towards alcoholism. Not only that, but even if you're far away from the Chernobyl accident, there are people within Western Europe who were warned, like, "Hey, this might affect you." So there was like a lot of terminations from what 100,000, 100,000, yeah, to 200,000 pregnancies being terminated, um, which is pretty sad. The second problem is waste. So nuclear waste is what we think of as fuel rods. And, you know, after a while, they cool down and they're put into a canister. But these canisters are pretty, pretty solid, right? Um, if your plane were to explode, they will still remain in contact. Um, and even if some of them escape, they can be recovered. And those that aren't recovered, it would still be minuscule. But most, most of the time, these uh, canisters are actually um, monitored pretty heavily. But it's important to note that nuclear waste is the only waste that's internalized, whereas almost every other form of energy is externalized to the environment. Um, but not, even then, like the amount of waste that's created on an individual level for each person in their whole lifetime is equivalent to a soda can, whereas in U.S. globally, right now, or the U.S. right now, it's the size of a football field. So not that huge, right? But let's compare it to, let's say, other forms of energy, right? 2010, the Deep Water Horizon drilling caught fire, killed 11 people, and emptied more than 130 million gallons of oil on the Gulf of Mexico. PNG natural gas pipeline exploded and killed eight people. The worst energy acted in 1975, the Hydrogen Dam in China collapsed and killed 170,000 people. Um, and usually, the death tolls for other things like walking, driving, working, air pollution can go up to over 200,000 to a million, right? But the death toll for nuclear is just over 1 million, 100. Yeah. But another analogy I like using, let's say you had a car and plane. Planes can kill more people, potentially. Cars happen more frequently. Thus, you people die more of car crashes. But we don't abolish any of the two because they're practically used. Same way, nuclear power has the potential to kill a lot of people. But because it has use, we don't. Right? It's very minus, uh, low chance of that happening. All right? But another thing to consider is like there's other types of nuclear energy such as lifters, small modulators, and nuclear fusion, which are more efficient and safe. But the main problem is actually costs. Um, the amount of money needed is rose up to billions, especially after the accidents have occurred. And so now we have a negative learning curve, meaning that we got worse of building it over time because of safety measures. And so some countries like Germany are trying to phase out of it in their attempts of what, Energuad? Um, but let's see how it compares to, let's say, uh, renewables. So solar farms, need lots of land. In fact, the most popular one in California is 450 times larger than, let's say, one nuclear power plant like in Diablo Canyon. Um, not only that, but they have physical limits, right? So the actual, let's say, 
power density of solar farms are 50 watts per square meter. In comparison, nuclear power plants produce 2,000 to 600,000 6, watts per meter. So let's say you want to power up the U.S., right, which has 134 million homes. To back that up with homes, businesses, factories, for the U.S. electrical grid for four hours, you need 15,900 storage centers, costing uh, $894 billion. And with batteries included, right, it's going to be $23 trillion, um, which is pretty insane. Let's compare that to Korea. So within the, what was it, Shin 3, 4, 5, and 6 being constructed since the 80s, um, they've been built pretty fast. Reason being is because if you have the same construction team with the same or similar design, they are better at building it, right? With incremental change, it gets more efficient, right? So there's not necessarily a negative learning curve, um, just a procedural change, right? But even if we go past that, we need to understand that how sometimes attempts to replace nuclear have been worse. So for example, example ExxonMobil, World Dutch Shell, Chevron, BP Total invested $1 billion in advertising and uh, lobbying for new renew renewables. Why? Well, because renewables don't power 24-7. They're not all that efficient. So some states have actually backed up when solar with all these other uh, fossil fuels, which is pretty bad. So for example, um, despite Germany implementing $580 billion for renewables by 2025, it's going to generate... 42% of electricity from wind, solar, and biomass. And the rest, well, natural gas, right? But another solution is CRISPR. Now, CRISPR, the way it works is that you have generally a CRISPR within you, right? Um, essentially, this is kind of like a, a way of fighting off foreigners. It's made of two parts. So there's the spacers, which are basically like the memory banks of how to fight off these diseases or any foreigner in general. And then you also have um, repeats, which are basically like the bedrocks of your DNA, right? And so what it does is that it clips with the help of chaos to know where, like, where the markers are. It clips your DNA. Um, and now these are being tools that actually create important things like curing blindness to genetic diseases, um, which is pretty astronomical. The reason I bring up CRISPR is because it has potential to change the way we get food. So there's ability for food to get last longer um compared to let's say gmos which have a bacteria that's manipulated and put into a plant um this is a lot safer right um and essentially gen genetic modification is basically a replica of what the original thing is right so but sometimes there's red tape meaning that it takes long to get it uh officially passed government regulations so for example there was salmon that took or genetic modified salmon that took 20 years to actually accept but you Luckily, there's actually a success from like soy, corn, potatoes, tomatoes, and more to create higher yields, more durability, uh, remove harmful ingredients, inc increase seeds, right? Um, but even if you pass that, just in general, right, we pr produce a lot of biotech, such as 3D printing duck meat, right? And not right now, um, it's become more co commercially available. So, for example, now we have vegan alternatives from the way we have like all these milk alternatives, right? Which is pretty huge for a population that's facing obesity. But also like ethical questions of how do we treat animals um and how do we stop starvation right but for the most part people are scared of what this can be what this can lead but that's kind of iffy since 80 percent of americans apparently say that they want a food that apparently has dna to be labeled as having dna uh yeah but yeah there's, there's potential risk for safety but in general we know from history that it tends to lead towards 
better outcomes. So it's just a degree in revolution. Um, but as well as that, compared to, let's say, GMOs, which have been questioned for changing your hormonal state, genetic, genetic modification from CRISPR is a lot safer. Now, the reason I bring up these alternatives is because they don't face economic downturn, right? They help the economy in general. The reason I'm saying this is because a lot of people say that there's too much inequality in the world and therefore all these poor countries are not going to make it. We should invest and make them skip um, so that we don't, they don't have the problems that us Western countries have, right? But global inequality has actually been declining, right? So the closer, let's say, uh, Gini coefficient, closer to 100, more unequal. Closer to zero, the more equal. So in a 2015 study published by Peterson Institute for International Economics, um, essentially what they found was that the Gini coefficient went down from 69 to 65. That's because China, India, and other sub-Saharan countries have basically developed. And the reason this is important is because if you look at an economic theory called Kuznets curve, essentially like your x-axis is the GDP per capita and your y-axis environmental damage. In the graph, the curve goes up and down like a bowl, essentially like an upside down bowl. What it means is that pre-industrial societies start with very little environmental impact into some economic development that cause environmental damage to peak until they reach post-industrial stage. This is because eventually wealthy nations have enough money to afford green technology and sacrifice a bit for the environment. So instead of saying outright sacrifice and development, we should encourage it the right way. One example was Bangladesh and Netherlands. After World War II, the Netherlands had massive floods. In response, they built dikes and canals. Right now, one third of their land mass is under sea, yet we don't consider them a poor country, right? So now Dutch experts are helping Bangladesh prepare for rising sea levels. Another solution is carbon tax, and I'll go over it quickly. Essentially, prices have meaning, right? And one meaning is, okay, how do I allocate these resources? Which one is best use? Do people like what I want? Because if costs are higher than my actual profits, then I'm not going to sell it this exact way, right? And so they have information packed into it. And so one thing that can be proposed is a tax based on carbon emissions with essentially a chain or a tracking of chain production, right? So if I were to, for example, buy a salmon, the way the salmon is going to get to my plate is going to be tracked by the amount of taxes there are. So for one example, I like using is Uber Eats, right? Uber Eats has delivery fees. The fee increases depending on distance. It makes sense. It takes a lot of more time and energy to get further distance. So when you're buying, you see why it's more expensive to eat in one place than another. So you incentivize to eat more locally. So the same thing would apply with, let's say, taxes on carbon emissions, right? And obviously, you want to make a trade-off between development and, you know, uh, emissions. Right. The next thing I want to talk about is R&D or research and development, because John Kerry, former Secretary of State and specialized in climate change, essentially stated with the IEA that we have to have technologies that aren't there yet. Um, and Bjorn Lundberg, who is supported by Dan Danish government and has a uh, Copen Consensus Institute, has a bunch of researchers that said, okay, well, the way we're going to get through is through ideas, right? So we need to have investments. Right now, there is not as much investment as necessary. There, is, there are commitments, but they're not actually committed to. Um, so for example, $141 billion is spent on subsidizing inefficient solar and energy, but that's only $6 billion in return for research and development. So instead, we need to actually have direct research towards ideas. Reason being is because they're going to get us out. So one example I like using is the World Fair. So Chicago's World Fair in 1893, about 127 years ago, some brilliant minds were asked, um, could you predict what the world is going to look like in 100 years? Some guess, right, that we'd be able to travel 
100 miles per hour through electric trains, war would be abolished, and that we would live to be 150 years. You know, that didn't happen, but some people got close, predicting email in the sense that they said letters would be sent via pneumatic tubes under the ocean. Air travel would be ubiquitous, with balloons guided through wires between cities. Now, they, that's an impressive feat, but I would say this is relevant because although we might not have, we have a sense of trajectory, there's no actual way of predicting where technology would take us. This is why we need to focus on ideas. So I want to leave you with the last message. Two good messages, actually. That people care and technology rocks. So let me explain, give you an example. There have been people, well, specifically 68 businesses like IKEA, HSBC, behind Leaders Quest and Do Now Nation, and an initiative to have people sign up online for steps to have commitments from diet changes, transportation changes, and buying habits, change how much energy they consume, etc. And after some time, they're going to get feedback and recommendations personally. The goal is to get 1 billion people, so very much like uh, Mr. Beast, right? But this accumulates, this can be a reduction of 20% of missions, which is seriously impressive. But second, I want to drive home the last idea with a story about how we stop whale hunting. 18th, 19th century, we used to hunt down whales um, on ships. Whales would get harpooned, exhausted, and we would penetrate their lungs. The whale oil was then used for lighting, soap, fragrance, umbrellas, etc. But then it came around Samuel Keir, who had the idea of petroleum as a way to stop illnesses. Um, but chemists essentially recommended him like using it as um, fluid lighting with the help of Edwin Drake for petroleum kerosene, he was able to produce as much whale oil within just three years. Now electricity fills the role of kerosene, obviously, but no one could have guessed that. So this is why we need to prioritize creating technology for both helping humanity economically, but also environmentally.